0: Well, good morning, good to see you. I, I do have some sad news to start with, not um, surprising news if you've been around for a little while, but um, Rod Burke uh, last week did die. Uh, so, last Monday, he went to be with his Lord. He was ready. He, um, you know, he'd been suffering for quite some time and uh, was in a place where he, he wanted to go, he wanted to be with Jesus. Uh, and so we're glad for him, he's released from the terrible uh, pain he was in, but of course you know, his family is left behind and that's uh, difficult, um, so pray for them, you know, for Janice, um, uh, Max, Hannah and Alistair, pray for them as they go through this period of uh, loss, it's massive, uh, lost their dad. And uh, they'll be on Monday, so tomorrow 1 o'clock in the hall, so up here at the top of the block, A service for Rod, so you're all welcome. Come along and join us there. Uh, And uh, it's a great time to celebrate his life, uh, give thanks to God, comfort uh, the family, uh, show your support for them, but also be reminded of the significance of these things. And if I could just use that as an opportunity to remind us now, actually, that um, what we do here together, just to keep saying this, uh, is desperately important. We are all going to die. We'll all be in that place where Rod is. Where Rod has journeyed through. We'll all be there. And are you ready? Are you ready to meet your Maker? Are you ready to stand before God? Um, there's nothing more important, you know. In the face of death, everything falls away. In the face of the reality of heaven and hell, you know, it's how much you've travelled, how much money you've had, how you—all of that just disappears. It's just a one thing. How will I stand before the God of the universe? Um, are you ready for that? What we do here is, is life and death. Um, do you know, every part of the Bible is speaking to that very thing. So we've been going through John's Gospel the last bunch of weeks. And John chapter 20, if you have been with us through this journey, you'll know that the, the end of the Gospel, John himself makes reference to this. He says, there are many things Jesus did. You know, he could have, uh, The books of the world wouldn't be enough to, to cover all the things that Jesus did. But he says, I wrote these things. Um, that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might believe, and by believing, have eternal life. That's what it's about. That we might come to know Jesus for who he is, that we might find in that belief life, true life, that takes us through into eternity. Like Rod, that you can stare death in the face and rejoice that you go to be with your Lord. There is nothing more important than that. That's the message of every part of the Bible, especially this part of the Bible we're looking at today. But let me just offer this, though. It's it's so simple. Believe Jesus. Come to Jesus. It's so simple. But there are many things in us that make all of that quite complex. And I want to suggest to you this morning that part of what we look at in John's Gospel, John chapter 10, is bringing that to the surface. There's a sense in which what John is doing is kind of taking us to this massively important issue, and on the way through, helping us see the challenges that we bring. What's going on for us that makes us hard, makes it actually hard to actually come to the thing that will bring us life. Now, this is a part of the Bible, John chapter 10, which has a lot in it. And uh, I I want to quickly take you through some of those things just in a moment and then get to the main thing. But let me pray, because this is massive, what we're doing together again. Let me me pray for God amongst us, that uh, he might work. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you would give us a real sense again this morning, by your Holy Spirit, of the seriousness of these things. That we might be able to put aside all the other distractions, that we might come together today and put our hearts and minds into your word and just be, be lifted up to see the truth of who Jesus is, how much it matters for us, that your spirit might stir our hearts to recalibrate and refresh and be captured anew by the things of Christ. Please work in us today, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are lots of things in this passage, uh, John chapter 10, the second half of it. Uh, let me give you, this four of them uh, that immediately come to mind, but we'll go to another one in 10. Let me give you the quick rundown. The four that stand out for me, the reality of division in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was surrounded by lots of division. You get this in chapter 10, verse 19, where John tells us the Jews who heard the words of Jesus were divided. Many of them were divided. Jesus came, and John wants us to see that as Jesus came... Division occurred between those who supported him, those who were opposed to him. And you actually get deliberately, I think, John alerts us, chapter 10, verse 40 to 41, to the end of the chapter to 42. There were, though, many who did believe in Jesus, hostile and believers. And John brings those two together to draw attention to this division. Second, the nature of the person of Jesus Throughout this little part of the Bible, there's so much here that's profound in its teaching about the very person of Jesus who he is. Verse 30, look at it there. My Father, I and the Father are one. Verse 38. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There are deep things being revealed here about the nature of God himself, who Jesus is in relationship to God, how he is God. Third. There's a wonderful piece of teaching here about the security of believers. Do you see that? And and many have actually shared at 8.30. This is one of their favorite texts. Verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Wow. If you put your faith in this man, Back those centuries ago, if you put your belief and trust in him, you will be in the hand of Jesus, in the Father's hand, and you will never be lost. God in Christ will keep you safe. You shall never perish. What a hope, what a message that is. Uh, That you'll be safe in this life, through this life, through the experience of death, into life beyond, in judgment day. You'll be safe. No one will snatch you out of Jesus' hand, says Jesus. The promise of God. Fourth, the importance of the Scriptures. You get some beautiful teaching here about Jesus, verse 34. He engages with the controversy that actually arises. I'll show you that in a moment. But he goes to that controversy and deals with it by quoting from the Scriptures, Psalm 82. And says in that very place that the Scriptures cannot be set aside. They are the Word of God. And if it's good enough for Jesus good enough for us. Jesus himself, of course, wrote the scriptures. He affirms their validity and their importance in this part of the Bible and elsewhere as well. There's four things that you can run through quickly and just see some profound teaching that emerges. But as important as each of those are, I want to suggest there's another theme that John is drawing our attention to as we go through this part. I think deliberately (coughs) engage with it. And this is what I think it is. He's drawing attention to the division, and in particular, he's drawing attention to how it is that some respond positively and some respond negatively. How is it, verse 42, that in that place many believe, but throughout verse 25 and down, some just get more and more hostile? What's happening there? What's going on? And it's my intention this morning to dig into that, because uh, I think by looking at that, it'll help us engage with our own hearts, see what's happening with us, but I hope more importantly that it'll actually help us come to Jesus in a way that is clear and confident and find security in him. So that's where I want to go with us th- this morning. So let's start looking at the section from verse 42 on and, and run through and I'll um, and I'll show you how it all plays out. Are you with me? You see where we're going? Verse 22, verse um, 22. Uh, then uh, came the Festival of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, the Festival of Dedication is the rededication of the temple uh, after Antiochus Epiphanes in 165 BC uh, desecrated it. They re-consecrated it. And this was celebrated for many centuries through into the life of Jesus. But that tells you the Feast of uh, the Dedication tells you we're now about three months uh, on, outside of the, before the crucifixion. So we're now coming right up to the last... Uh, months of Jesus' life, last three months, and interestingly, important to note, this is chapter ten. The book has twenty-one chapters, and so what this book, what that tells you is, John is going to focus half his book on the last period of Jesus' life, because that's where it all happens. But what's been emerging as we've gone along is this kind of division. Chapter ten, verse nineteen: the Jews who heard these words were again divided. And what we'll see as we go through this little section that more and more division plays out. As you come to the very end of Jesus' life, it's getting more and more hostile against Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We hate divisions, rightly. It's a very unhealthy person who loves conflict, and I hope it's none of us. But we hate divisions, we hate people being disunited, split apart, and the last two years have actually caused that to happen amongst us in families, hasn't it? There have been many families who have been torn apart by the whole um, vaccine issue, what to do about COVID and so on, differing opinions. It's been a horrible thing. I hope it hasn't happened in your family. It's dreadful. Um, We've seen our community divided over these issues. In fact, our whole world is becoming more and more fragmented, and it's a dreadful thing. to be at peace with each other is a beautiful thing. To be united together is wonderful. In fact, there's a verse in the Scripture, Psalm 133, tells us that uh, it, it's a good and beautiful thing when the brethren dwell in unity together. God loves unity. In fact, He sends the Lord Jesus, Ephesians chapter one, verse nine and ten, to bring unity to all things. Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. Unity is a good thing. Divisions are dreadful. We hate division. But all around Jesus, while He was alive. There was divisions, disunity, hostility. And it's a puzzling thing for many Christians. In 2012, 2012, there was a book in America written called Why is the Gospel of Love Dividing America? So he was an author noticing that amongst Christian circles around the, the, in, through the states of America, there was lots of division happening around the Christian faith. And he's going, why is it that the Gospel of Love is bringing division to our country? Now, the assumption in the book by the author is that if the Christian message is all about love, then it should bring people together. And how come it isn't? What's going wrong? Is it the way we're delivering it? Now, can you see a problem with that little analysis? Can you see a problem? Don't call it out. Can you see a problem with that little analysis? The Christian message isn't about love. Fundamentally. It is a lot to do with love. God is a God of love. Because of his love for us, he sends his son into the world to save the world. He's a God of love. Love is at the heart of the Christian message, yes. But fundamental to the Christian message, at the very core of the Christian message, is who Jesus is. At at the core, the Christian message, the gospel, is about a God of love, but fundamentally about a God of love who sends Jesus claiming to be someone. It's about who Jesus is, which has led someone to respond to that book by saying, uh, it's not how does the gospel of love divide America, it's how could not the gospel of the lordship of Jesus bring division to America? You see, play play this out with us. Have a look there at verse 24. The Jews who were gathering around Jesus said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Just notice this. The thing on their hearts and minds is, who are you? You claim, "Are are you the Messiah? You seem to be saying you are, but tell us plainly. The first question for them is, are you, who you say, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Who are you? Now, I think this is a response to chapter 10, verse 6, where Jesus, the earlier part of chapter 10, where Jesus has been using a figure of speech to talk about himself. He's been calling himself the shepherd with sheep, the good shepherd, the gate. He's been using these metaphors and these images. And the Jews who gather around Jesus say to him, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Because they're interested in his identity. Um, now, you see how much this matters because Christianity is about who Jesus is. In fact, it shows itself again down in verse um, 31. The Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone Jesus. Jesus said to them, I've shown you many loving works, many good works, many beautiful works from the Father, but for which of these do you stone me? And they say, we're not stoning you for any of the beautiful, loving things you do, but for blasphemy, because you a mere man claim to be God. Do you see the point here is again? At the heart of Jesus is not just the beautiful acts of love, but it's a radical claim about who he is as a person that he is the Messiah, that he is even more than the Messiah. And why should that not be divisive? How could it be otherwise? It's a claim that this man, born 2,000 years ago, is over us. He is our Lord, our Master, our Ruler. That's what the word Messiah means. He's our Saviour, but he's our Saviour as King. This is massively divisive. You know, quick illustration, if I come to your home... Drop in this afternoon. Now, the first reaction you'll have is, what have I done wrong? I don't know how that kind of happens. But anyway, when I, when I drop in on people, I, the first thing is, what have we done? And uh, I don't know why that's the case. But um, I love dropping in on people. But uh, if I drop in and I walk into your house and I say, you know what? This is all mine. The house is mine. To do with Your house is mine. Your, your car, mine. Your kids, mine. All of it's mine what would you do with me? Well, some of you might say the kids haven't been sleeping. You can have them all. You can take them. <laughs> They're all yours. Um, but, but what would you do with me? I don't think many of you would just lie in the lounge with a remote control and say, whatever. You'd say, no, it's not. Get out of here. Who do you think you are? Because a claim to have ownership over you and all that you are challenges you at a very deep place. It will be divisive. Either you throw me out of the house as a madman or you fall at my feet and bow before me and give me all you have. But you can't do one, they're your options. Jesus comes amongst us claiming to be the Messiah and far more than that and his claim by its very essence has consequences that are divisive. They ask him about his identity. Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. They want to get this claim about who he is sorted. And he says to them, look, verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. I have told you. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe. I've told you. I've done things that are completely consistent and testify to the reality of the claim that I am the Messiah, that I am God amongst you in the flesh. I've done all of I've said and I've done and you don't believe me. You've rejected me. It's divisive. And in a couple of steps, what he does then is he, if I might offer this image, he he, he then actually heightens the whole thing. He throws kero on the fuel of their hostility. He fires them up even further. You follow the way the language goes here. Um, You do not believe, verse 26, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You want to know whether I'm the Messiah? I've told you I am. I've done things that show you I am. But you know what? I'm even more than that. Which causes them to pick up stones to threaten to kill him. Now just come back through that little section of teaching where Jesus could have sort of Heightens the hostility against him as he brings the richness of who he is to them even further. But just notice a couple of things here on the way through. Verse uh, 27, it needs to be cleared up here, just a quick thing. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. There was a tradition of thinking uh, some decades ago, and I don't know if it's still around, where people suggested that what Jesus was saying here was that this is about guidance. So you, know, you can be a Christian, um, but once you mature to be a sheep, you can be a lamb uh, and you won't hear the voice of Jesus. But as you mature into being a sheep, you'll begin to hear the voice of Jesus in your private devotions, in the experiences of a private guidance With because you'll matured now. You and many have suggested, some have suggested that that's the meaning of Jesus' teaching here. I want to say that's not what Jesus is talking about. The point that he's making here is something far larger. He is defining what it is to be a Christian. And the voice that he's talking about listening to is not a private voice. It's the public teaching ministry of Jesus through the Gospels. It's akin to what he says back in chapter 8, where he says, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciple. Because my sheep listen to my voice. And my voice is the public teachings I'm giving you of the Gospel. And if you're one of my sheep, you'll hear my voice, the public teachings, and respond. That's what he's talking about. And further to that, he's saying... What, what makes you a, a genuine member of my flock, a, a sheep, is that you hear my voice, the public teachings that I've given in the scriptures, not some private, but the public teachings, you hear them, heed them, and follow. That's what sheep, my sheep, do. Now there is a beautiful little definition of what a Christian is. What's a Christian? Someone who hears the words of the gospel message of Jesus and he recognises the voice that's speaking there is not a man's voice but God's voice, Jesus' voice. You hear the voice of your shepherd. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You hear my Lord is speaking to me. And then you follow. You obey. You bend the knee and obey. That's what a Christian is. Not, do you belong to a certain church? Are you in a certain denomination? Uh, you, you know, have you got certain parents? It's not, nothing to do with that. It's Do you hear the voice of Jesus and recognise it for who it is, the voice of your shepherd, and follow him, obey him? Beautiful little teaching about what marks out a true Christian. There are bigger things going on here. I'm not just the Messiah. I'm the great shepherd who has the power to secure humans forever. Because if you come to me, if you're one of my sheep, You'll listen to my voice. I know them. You'll follow me. Verse 28. I will grant you eternal life and that my sheep will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given to them is greater. I'm not just the Messiah. I'm the great shepherd who has the power to secure humans, frail, weak, sinful humans, into eternal life forever. And, verse 30, I am one with God himself. Wow. There's another little piece that indicates that extraordinary alignment between the Father and Jesus. Uh, And you can see it there in verse 28 and 29. Now I want you to do some work. We're coming into holiday, so you've got time, yes? Um, Think with me. uh, Whose hand are you in if you're a Christian? Have a look at the text. Whose hand are you in if you're a Christian? You're in Jesus' hand. The Father's hand. Did you see that? I give them eternal life. Verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Whose hand are you in? Both. Because the hand of Jesus is aligned and united with the hand of the Father. Because he's one with the Father. Because Jesus is making a radical claim about himself here astonishing Christianity is about identity, who Jesus is, and it's the claims of Jesus that bring division, the scale, the audacity, the implications of this claim that Jesus comes amongst us and says to all of you, 're not your own, you belong to me. Now they get this, they pick up stones to kill him because of who he claims to be, God, verse 33 and he then Responds in this quite complex way, verse 34. We haven't got time to deal with all the detail, but I just want to show you this. He explains with this quite complex discussion around Psalm 82 and how it applies. I'll give you a little bit of a taste of it. But what I want you to notice as he does this, that the very way in which Jesus engages with the group shows the truth of his claim. Have you been to court? I've been to court a couple of times. Um, not ever because I've been the defendant, in the, but, but I've gone to watch, right? I've been supporting someone. And uh, anyway, um, now I've been to court and in the courtroom you've got this kind of... You've got a... The defendant sits in a dock with a kind of railing fence around them sort of sitting down in the dock. The prosecutor stands and comes at them and addresses them and asks, throws questions at them. But over them all is the judge. So the judge sits in a higher seat... Looking down on the proceedings, yes? And the one who makes determinations and so on. Now there's a quick little picture about the courtroom. What I want you to think about is this. When these this group of Jews came to Jesus and engaged with Jesus, of those three people, which do you think they saw themselves as? Which one do you think they saw themselves as? At, certainly the prosecutor. And very likely the judge. You get the feel that they come to Jesus as the religious authorities. You know, defend yourself, Jesus. Make a case, and if you make a good enough case, we might let you off. We might, and they feel like the judge, the prosecutor. But what happens as you go through Jesus' response to them? What happens? The whole thing flips. Because the one that they think they've got in the dock is actually their judge, the judge of all humankind. Tell us plainly, they say. And Jesus says, I have told you. I'm not at your beck and call. I have told you. I've shown you. And in fact, the reason you don't listen to me is because you're not part of my flock. I've not chosen you to be my sheep. Because I'm over it all. I'm the one who's the judge. If you were to come to me and be my sheep... I would give you eternal life because I'm the one who grants eternal life. And no one would ever snatch you out of my hand because I'm the great power who is one with the Father. The whole thing shifts and turns. I am the Lord over you and you are utterly at my mercy. You know, one of the most powerful lessons in my life as a Christian, as a human actually, was to read Revelation chapter 1. Grab your Bible and turn over to Revelation chapter 1. I read this as a very young Christian, uh, newly converted, and it was one of the pieces, uh, Ezekiel 36 was another piece, but one of the pieces that was very instrumental in shaping my thinking and my life. Have a look with me and look at verse 12. I'll go through this fairly quickly, but um, you'll get the picture. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing water, like a great waterfall. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, devil edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "'Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. "'I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, "'and I hold the keys of death and Hades. "'And if you weren't afraid before, you should be now.'" That's how I read that last little section. You, what do you When you read that, what do you pick up? This Jesus who walked the dirty, dusty streets around Jerusalem, thirsty, hungry, meek, frail, weak, is actually seen and revealed in all his glory to be the great Lord of the universe, who towers over us, who has humbled himself for a time, who has... Emptied himself to be amongst us in this frail way. Don't let his humility and his emptying fool you. Take care as you engage with this Jesus. They failed to. Take great care as you engage with him. But get this. Take great comfort. Because if you're in his hands. You are safe forever. Forever. Nothing can snatch you out of his hands because of who he is, his greatness and glory. Now, all of this plays out in that engagement. As I mentioned, he quotes Psalm 82, and it is complex. What's Psalm 82 talking about with mention of gods and mortal and so on? It is complex, but I think what Jesus is doing at the very least is this. He's saying, you've come to me accusing me of blasphemy because I make myself equal with God, call myself the son of God, Um, and you think you're justified in that because you've used the Bible to come up with blasphemy laws, and so you're just doing what? But here's the deal, you haven't read your Bible very well. Because if you read Psalm 82, and Jesus just pulls it out of the air like that. I mean, I guess he wrote it, he would know it. But he knew his scriptures. He pulls out Psalm 82 and says there's much more going on in the Bible about the language of Son of God and, uh, and, and so on. Be cautious in your judgments is what he's saying to them. He's not winning the argument. He's urging them to caution. But then he ratchets it up. And he says, verse 36, If it can be true of mere mortals that that language might be used. Verse 36, How much more true is it of the one the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world, who pre-existed, sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I'm God's son? Do you see what he's saying? <laughs> uh, if, it's, if it can be used of mere mortals, how much truer can it be of one who truly is God come amongst us, his son? He's engaging in a deep and profound way with them, which then moves on to say, not only am I the son of God, but the father is in me and I am in the father. And things just got more hostile. They tried to grasp him. Jesus is a man like no other man. He is either the greatest lie or the most astonishing truth. There is no middle ground. And Jesus didn't intend to leave us any middle ground. He is all or nothing. Hence the division. Because you can't, if you respond apathetically to Jesus, you've not understood what he's claiming to own you and your life. Do you know, when I talk to my friends, and I try and do this, Adrian's very helpful in encouraging and all this, but as I try and talk to my friends, I was at a function on Friday and tried to talk to the men around me. As I raise these things, I'm very conscious that as I do it and begin to talk to them about the things of Jesus, I'm essentially confronting them at the very core of their being about who they are. You are not your own. You are made by God, made for God, under the lordship and rule of Jesus. I'm very conscious that it is incredibly confronting the message we bring to people. It is not just all about love, though it is a great message of love. No wonder genuine Bible Christianity brings division. It's no wonder. And in fact... Martin Luther uh, is one who was famous for talking about this. He, he, back in the centuries past, he said, he said in these kinds of words, the evidence that biblical Christianity is being preached faithfully is repentance and faith and hostility. Hostility. They're the evidences. Apathy is rarely the evidence of genuine Bible Christian teaching. But back to the issue I think John is pressing in on us. Why did one group embrace and the other group react against him? Why did that, that group fail to accept? Um, and in fact, let me invite your thoughts. We've got a bit of time here. Um, give us, why do you think this group of Jews, now it wasn't all the Jews, by the end of the chapter we've got a bunch of Jews who put their faith in Jesus, but why does this group of Jews not respond warmly to Jesus? Give us your thoughts. Pride, yeah come across to chapter 11 a bit more than pride it's interesting come across to chapter 11 have a look there in verse uh, 48 if we let Jesus go on like this everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation they had an agenda they didn't want Jesus to be true because of the implications of Jesus being who he was on their life. Yeah. Why else didn't they? Authorities being their authority is being undermined. Yeah. The, the, the claim of Jesus says, you're not in charge, I am. Profound. They thought they had God sorted. They, they, yeah. I, they, they thought they had God sorted. They, they had their blasphemy laws. And they, they, they'd read their Bible. And it, you know you can't take the name of the Lord in vain. They'd read the Ten Commandments. And so they thought they had God sorted. But here's the deal, just to press that one a little bit further too. They thought they had it sorted because they'd read the verse. But they'd not read enough scriptures. They'd not wrestled with the whole of the Bible. They'd not seen how it all fitted together because if they'd read more of that Bible, they'd appreciate Psalm 82, but also the promises that God himself one day would come as the Great Shepherd, that there was anticipated there would be one born who would be called Father. They hadn't read enough of their Bible. Now, all of these observations are really very helpful because let me suggest to you this. As we engage with the things of Jesus, I, I, I want to own the fact that I'm like them so often, aren't you? We don't come neutral. We come with our agendas and we come conscious that to accept Jesus for who he is will have massive implications for my lives. So I want to find reasons for him not being true. We come with agendas. And we can easily come to Jesus and Christian things with a set of assumptions about what what should be right and wrong, true and false, and measure Jesus by those things. It's a bit complex. Let me try and make sense of this. Um, a man called Tim Keller calls them defeater beliefs. Defeater beliefs. And what he's noting is, I think very helpfully, is that lots of people in our community have, have one or two beliefs about, I mean, you, you know, about money or about um, sexuality or about gender or whatever it is, or about what the church has been like. They have a, set of, they have a particular belief that because of that, They can't ever be a Christian. They say, you say, I would never be able to become a Christian because of what the church has done. A belief that defeats everything. You know, I could never become a Christian because of what the church, what Jesus, what the Bible teaches about, whatever it is. It's a defeat of belief, do you see? That's what effectively these Jews were doing. I can never believe Jesus, despite all the good that he's doing... Because he claims to be the son of God and you're not allowed to do that. Do you see how they've got a conception, picked up a verse, made much more of it than the verse allows, and turned that into a defeater belief? It is so easy to do. Now, look what Jesus does in his kindness to them. He says, verse 36, "'Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I'm God's son?' Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father, granted. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Do you see what it is? even though you don't like me, even though you don't like how I am and what I'm like and how I speak, at least believe the works. <laughs> because so much is at stake don't be turned off by that defeater thing. Go at least a bit further to explore and find. Perhaps your belief has been misshaped, misformed. Allow that you perhaps missed something. Don't let that conception, poorly formed, stop you finding life. The evidence is all there. Do you see what Jesus is doing? The grace of Jesus in the midst of all of this. Can I offer then for two of us, two different groups... Perhaps those of you who are among us, um, you're still wrestling with the things of Christ. Let me talk to you, but then I'll talk to us, because I think it addresses us. But those of us who are still wrestling with the th- things of Christ, can I offer um, the, 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 the warning that um, the things of Jesus are so profound and so important. Don't let one issue be the reason that you don't look further. Because it might be that that one issue... Is itself not thought through enough? There might be much more to be said there that as you go forward, you'll find, oh, I've misconceived that anyway. and that Don't let that one thing stop you looking at the evidences for the person of Jesus. And be alert to the possibility, and I dare say a real possibility knowing my own heart, that there are other things at stake. Really, it might be you're using that thing to avoid looking at who Jesus is because you don't want him to be who he claims to be. Be alert to all of that because there's so much at stake in this. Can I point to us who are Christians? Those of us who have turned to Jesus. I find myself reading this group of Jewish people and their reactions to Jesus and I find it impossible not to want to diagnose my own heart and see whether I'm doing the same thing. And I tell you what I think I do, I think we do. The danger is that we can come to Jesus with a set of preset convictions Convictions that get formed in our community life. And I begin to get a very strong conviction about a certain thing, and Jesus has to fit in. It might be the climate, my views on the climate. Jesus has to agree with that. And if I find, if I start to hear that he might not, I won't listen, I won't go there. And what happens is it becomes a limiter on your ability to mature and grow as a Christian. It might be some other issue that's a hot issue in our community, whatever it might be. It might be the way you think about your money, it might be the way you think about your kids and your family. The kids, my kids are the most important thing in my life. But you come to Jesus and you find he might suggest something different. You won't let him, you won't hear it. Because you've got this preset conviction. Be very careful, friends. This matters because the deeper truth of the passage is this. We don't come to Jesus as equals. We don't come to Jesus as equals. It's not a negotiation. Jesus' humility can be misunderstood. We don't determine if he fits into our hopes and so accept him. We're not in the seat of the judge assessing Jesus. He's the Lord of the universe. We come humbly before him, recognizing the towering magnitude of who he is. He is one with God the Father. The Father is in him and he is in the Father. He's the one who grants eternal life, who's sovereign over whether you come or not. He has walked amongst us for a time having emptied himself, but he is the great I am. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. (laughs) He is the one through whom you were made. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. We're not shepherds together working out this life. We come to him bowed. My life is yours. We give him properly a blank check. Do with me as you please because my life... We don't do that to earn his favour. It's not like it's some great sacrifice that Jesus goes, you're awesome. What we do is recognise the truth. My life has always been his. Everything I have has been given to me by him. So I'm not giving him anything that is not his already. It's facing the truth. Now, if you're honest with yourself, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I find it hard. And I think we all do. And I want to suggest, forgive me if I'm sounding sexist, but I think this is a man problem particularly. I think women have the problem as well. But I feel it as a man thing particularly. To bow the knee to someone else. Thank God he's gracious and he receives sinners like us. But here's the deal two things to finish. Who is the true Christian? Who is the one who has security into eternity? It's the one who hears the voice of Jesus as his shepherd, her shepherd, listens to that voice, the public voice in the scriptures. Receives it as my shepherd speaking to me, and follows him. Follows him, obeys him. Sure, slipping up often, needing repentance and forgiveness often. It's the grace of God in Jesus that makes it possible for sinners, the that We never lose. But my orientation of life is to be the sheep that hears the voice of the scriptures and hears my saviour, my shepherd speaking, and I follow. Is that you? Is that you? See, Rod Burke has left us. He's gone through death. But he's safe in the arms of Jesus. Will you be? How do you know? If you're one of his sheep, the Lord's sheep, how do you know? Do you hear his voice as the voice of your shepherd and follow? Do you follow? Or is your life full of conditions? Now, brothers and sisters, let me finish with a word of encouragement, though. If you are his sheep, then he has given you eternal life. And you will never perish. No one will ever snatch you out of the hand of Jesus, out of the hand of his father. Because the great God and father of us all has given you to Jesus. And he is greater than all. And you'll be safe in his hands forever. Praise God for that, yes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary things we would read in the Bible. We thank you for the wonderful truths of who Jesus is. Mind-blowing, deep, glorious. Help us appreciate them for what they are and help us grow in our understanding of them. But particularly help us recognise the truth that you are the shepherd. We're the sheep. Help us be people who evidence that in our daily life by hearing your voice, listening to your voice and following you. And help us therefore know the great security that comes by being your sheep. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.